This morning, we have the privilege of having Pastor Bill uh, begin our Daniel series, and we'll be reading Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 from the ESV. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as Luke just said, we are starting a new teaching series this morning in the book of Daniel. And I want to pause just for a moment and thank a number of you who have been praying. Uh, we've contacted each other and you've asked and I've said, I'm really struggling uh, with this message. It's probably one of the hardest ones that I have, I think, put together. And I suspect some of that has to do with the topic. I think this is going to be a very important series for us as a church. The book of Daniel is all about how do we, as people of faith, live among people who do not share our faith. People who sometimes tolerate our faith, they're relatively friendly toward us, and people who at other times are not so friendly, who see our faith as a direct threat to what they value, to what they believe, and to what they want to see happen. How do we, as people of faith, live among people who don't share our faith? How do we do this when there's tension? Sometimes less, sometimes more, but how do we do this when there's tension between us and our society? Tension that never fully goes away because it's a tension that can't fully go away. So you have to remember that we are dual citizens all the time, wherever we go, in whatever time period we are, we are simultaneously citizens of whatever society we are living in here on this earth, while at the same time, we're citizens of heaven. Our king is in heaven. That's where our first loyalty is. That's where our most fundamental values come from. But what our king values is found nowhere here fully on this planet. Nowhere fully embraced by any society or by any subset of any society, by any nationality, any ethnicity, any political group. Nowhere fully embraced because he is not fully embraced by any portion of the larger society. And yet one of the things that our king values is taking his people and spreading them out among the nations for the purpose of benefiting the nations, for the sake of caring for the people around us like he has cared for us, to make their lives better. And so he scatters us among the nations, nations that don't fully embrace him, which means then there's always tension for us 
There's always something among our neighbors that we cannot fully agree with, even in the best of societies. Always something that just doesn't fit while we're trying to love our neighbors as ourselves. Always something uncomfortable for living here as a person of faith. Sometimes less, sometimes more, but it's always there. And so the question that comes down through the ages for the people of God is how do we live with values and beliefs that are at odds with our society? How do we live here when our society is more friendly and how do we live here when it's less so? Now, before I go any further, let's just be frank. God's people have not always embraced our dual citizenship well. And there are reasons for that. It's hard to live with different values from the larger society. It's really hard when you're trying to love the people in that society, when you're trying to bless them, when you're trying to care for them in ways that make sense to them so that they can have a chance to see how much better Christ is than anything that they've built their life on. That's really hard to do. And we haven't always done a great job at it. Frankly, many times the church has done this really poorly, and as part of the church, you and I have to admit, we've done this relatively poorly at times. Now, broadly speaking, there are four bad ways to engage our society, four ways that avoid the hard work that God calls us to. Each of these ways notices the tension that is there, but tries to resolve it by getting rid of that tension in one way or another. So what are these four ways? One option is you can withdraw from the society. You can say, society is so bad that we need to have nothing to do with it. And so we'll resolve the tension by retreating from the world and having as little to do with it as possible. We'll try to construct our own world that insulates us from the larger world so that we just primarily have to deal with other believers. You can talk about this in the small version of you know, Christian ghettos where we spend most of our time with each other, or you can go to more extreme versions, living like the Amish, and you can withdraw. Or second option, you can try to compel society to be like you. You can say society is bad, but it doesn't have to be. God's rules should be our society's rules, and we can make that happen not by a work of the Spirit inside of people's hearts so that they learn to love the God who has made them, but we can make them follow the rules that God has given by enforcing those rules through political or, others or some other kind of means, and then there won't be any tension because they will fit in with us. In other words, you can embrace some version of Christian nationalism, you can try to redo the experiment of Christendom and try to compel society to be like you. Or thirdly, you can assimilate. You can say, you know, society's really not so bad. There's lots of overlap. Not everything is a to die for issue. And so we'll just let go of some of our beliefs that tend to irritate the people around us. We'll adopt their values on those items so that we can fit in better. And you know that you've gone down that road when you do feel fairly comfortable in any subset of your society. It's one of the indications that you've assimilated. Or fourthly, you can bifurcate. You can say there is only tension if you speak or act in ways that are outside of your society's norms when there are other people around. So when you're in a public setting, like work or school, keep your faith to yourself. Your faith doesn't belong in that public sphere. Don't say or do anything based on your faith. Simply do in those settings what your society allows. And then when you're at home or at church, go ahead, live your faith as fully as you want to. 
And so you embrace a public-private divide for your faith, or people call it a sacred-secular divide. You bifurcate. Now, speaking very honestly, I will confess, I've tried a variety of those approaches at, throughout my life, and ironically enough, I've tried several of them at the same time, trying to somehow get rid of the tension of living in a world that is out of step with the faith that God has called me into. I suspect that you've tried a number of those options as well. And that's why the book of Daniel is helpful. Because as you read through the lives of Daniel and his friends, you realize that they don't fit into any one of those four categories. They live and work on a daily basis for their entire lives in the political and cultural heart of Babylonian civilization, and they thrive there. They don't withdraw. But they don't confuse Babylon with the kingdom of God. They know that they live simultaneously in two different kingdoms that will not fully agree until the end of this age when the earth is remade, and they don't try to enforce change through force, through compulsion. But as they live there, they don't compromise their values. They don't assimilate, and they refuse to keep their faith private. They speak up, they act out of their faith-informed worldview, even when it's nearly certain that that's going to get them killed. They live out their private faith in public, and they end up blessing the people around them, bringing the message of God to them. Now, how did they do all of that? How did they live among the nations without losing their faith while they impacted the world around them in ways that are good? How did they live faithfully with the tension of their dual citizenship that their faith brought them into. That's the focus of our series over these next several weeks. So to get us started today, we're gonna ask three questions from the beginning of chapter one. First, what is this world like? What is the nature of this world that creates tension for the people of God? What is this world like? Second, what does this world try to do as it engages God's people? How does it approach us? Why does it approach us that way? What's it trying to do? And third, what do you need in order to live faithfully here? Given what the world is like, given what it's trying to do, what keeps you focused on God's agenda while you're living in the tension? So what is the world like? What is it trying to do to God's people? And third, what keeps you living faithfully? First, what is the world like as it engages God's people? Very simply said, It's antagonistic. That's the fundamental thing that you have to understand about the larger world if you're going to live in it and if you're going to care well for it. And I suspect that that's going to be hard for a number of us. Why? We know people who are nice. We go to work with them. They live in our neighborhoods. We do different kinds of activities with them. They don't seem antagonistic. They would not recognize that description of themselves if you had said that to them. They don't look like it. So how can that be a fundamental reality of this world? Here's where we're going to have to do a lot of work this morning. Let's start by going back to Daniel chapter 1. Now on the surface of this opening chapter, the antagonism is pretty easy to see. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's the opening to the book of Daniel, the setting for everything that's going to take place afterwards. And it's a setting that does not take place in Israel, does not take place in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is where God's temple is. It's where his king is. It's where it was thought that God's kingdom would be established. But that is not where Daniel and his friends live out their faith. And the reason they don't live their faith out in Jerusalem is because Babylon has come and interrupted their lives, turned them upside down. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. He conquered it. And then he deported Israel's best and brightest. Verse 3, he commanded one of his men to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Skipping a little bit. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, conquered it, and took people. He abducted them. And not just any people, but those from the royal family and the nobility. So he took those with all of the social and cultural advantages of their day. He took those who had gone to better schools, who had better tutors, those who had joined more elite organizations, those who had the opportunity to explore and develop their gifts and talents. Those who were used to being around power and around power people. Nebuchadnezzar took the future leaders of Israel. Those are the people that Nebuchadnezzar rips out of their homes and forces to march nearly 900 miles away to Babylon. He is taking away the most vital resource that the people of God have. And by taking away their future leaders, he's taking away Israel's future. And he's doing it, why? Is he trying to help move along God's agenda? Trying to get this world ready for the coming Messiah? Trying to further God's missionary concern to reach the Gentiles? And you realize, no, it's none of those. Nebuchadnezzar took the best that Israel had, not because he's interested in God's agenda, but because he's interested in his own. It was so that at some point, verse 5, these young men would stand before the king so that they would take their God-given gifts and talents and use them in Nebuchadnezzar's service on behalf of Babylon. It was so that they would make Babylon stronger even while at the same moment it was making Israel weaker. There's a baseline hostility here against God, against God's people. That's at the heart of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. It's an antagonism that is so focused on Babylon that God is just not in the picture. God's been pushed to the edges. God's agenda has been pushed to the edges. And that's the same antagonism that you find in the larger world. It's a focus and absorption on goals and desires that don't take God into account, that spends resources on things that God is not doing. It's an antagonism toward God, and it's a universal antagonism that you find throughout the world. Now, now I could imagine if we were sitting down together that you might say, well, wait a minute, Bill. This is one instance of one atrocity by one king of one nation. Aren't you kind of making a little bit too much out of this? I think that'd be a fair question to ask. So I would say, let me suggest two ways to approach it. First, think about the place of the book of Daniel within the rest of the Old Testament. The majority of the Old Testament focuses on the people of God within their own community or as their own nation. 
So whether they're traveling through the desert or living in the land of Israel, it focuses on them together as the people of faith. There are only a few books that describe what it was like for an Israelite to live outside of Israel. Only a few books that describe what, what it was like for the people of faith to not make up the majority culture. When a person of faith had to interact as a minority with people who held different beliefs. Only two books that talk about that kind of experience. There's Daniel and there's Esther. Now you could argue maybe, you know, there's pieces of Jonah, pieces of Nineveh, the patriarchs, all of those uh, people sort of rub shoulders at different times with people outside of their faith. But the focus of those stories is not on how to live out your faith in a daily basis among people who don't share it. That is the focus of Daniel and Esther. And in both books, God's people are required to live out their faith against this backdrop of antagonism against them. In Esther, the antagonism is really aggressive. It's targeted at God's people as a whole, and it comes to a climax in that book, a boiling point. In Daniel, the antagonism is not as global. It's more pointed. It's more individual. It's more personalized. A little bit less intense, but it's also more constant. It forms the backdrop to every story, a backdrop against, what, that you, against which you see what faith looks like. Now remember here what the purpose of Scripture is. It's not to give you interesting details of other people's lives that are unique to those people and that only apply to them. The purpose of Scripture is to help you to figure out how to live your life, to learn from those accounts what life is really like, and to learn how to approach life faithfully. In other words, God knows that you do not have to deal specifically with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. That was 2,600 years ago. But he puts this book in Scripture to help you see that what is true of that day also has relevance to you. And so it helps you to understand how are you supposed to deal with the Nebuchadnezzars, the Babylons that you have to face. It gives you ideas of how to go about living where you live. So the first thought that I would offer is that the book intends you to generalize from the specifics of that day to your own life and to recognize that Nebuchadnezzar has something to tell you about what this world is like. Second thing I'd say is that it's no accident that God chose Babylon as the general case to write about. And that's because the imperialism that you see in Daniel chapter one, the imperialism that has no interest in God's agenda, that's what Babylon was known for. In another book, the prophet Habakkuk will describe Babylon. He describes it shortly before they came and besieged Jerusalem. And he describes it this way, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, who all come for violence, who gather captives like sand, who laugh at every fortress, guilty men, whose own might is their God. In other words, Habakkuk is saying, it's not a one-off occurrence here of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. This nation had a reputation. They had a history. They had a history of using their power to do what they wanted, regardless of what God was doing or regardless of what God wanted them to do. And it was a history and reputation that went back centuries. See, the very first time that you encounter the Babylonian Empire in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 11. It's in the Babylonian Empire that the Tower of Babel was built. If you remember what that, was, that 
Tower of Babel was about. It was a building project that intentionally rejected God's plan for humanity. God said to humanity, spread out across the globe and fill it with my glory. And humanity said to God, no. And so they gathered together in one place to build this tower to make a name for themselves. You learn early on that the defining characteristic of the Babylonian mindset was that it rejected God. It rejected his ideas and it replaced his ideas with their own. Babylonians created a lifestyle over the course of their civilization that was so different from what God wanted that the word Babylon would come to symbolize all the moral depravity and the evil of the world. That's why when you get into the New Testament, an author like Peter will say, will we'll call Rome Babylon. Not simply because it's decadent, but, but also because of its opposition to God and his people. That's why Babylon features so prominently in the book of Revelation. It's because Babylon both leads the world and represents the world as it stands in opposition to God's people. And it's an opposition that is so complete that in the end, the church only has one true friend in the world. It's not Babylon. It's not anything that Babylon represents. It's not any nation on earth. It's not any political or ruling power. It's not any economic policy, not any military might. At the end of human history, you see that all of those have opposed God and his people down through the ages. The only friend that the church has throughout history is Jesus. But you also learn that he's more than enough for everything that comes against his people. This is what the world is like. Don't be fooled by it. Don't expect the world to be better than it is. It can't be. When you scrape away the surface veneer, what do you see? It, that it's committed to its own ideas, not to God's ideas. How can it then be anything other than hostile to God and to his people? That's the nature of this world. Sometimes it's less obvious, sometimes more, sometimes it's really overt, but it's always there. And if you don't see that, if you think that this world is better than it is, you won't understand what's going on around you, and you won't be in a position to see what it is that the people around you need. You won't be able to help them as they're caught up in the world. That's point one, what this world is like as it engages God's people. Second, what is this world trying to do? You see two things in the book of Daniel. It either tries to co-opt the people of God or it tries to crush them. Think again about what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He brings young men to Babylon, verse four, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's trying to turn Israelites into Babylonians. He's very intentional and very systematic about it. Here's his plan. First, he isolates them. He takes them out of the world that they are used to. He takes them to Babylon. He removes them from the community support that they once had from their family, from their friends, and he settles them in a completely alien framework. He isolates them. Second, he attempts to reprogram them, to indoctrinate them. For three years, they are to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, literature that was filled with an enormous pantheon of deities, deities that extended into every possible area of life, myths, legends, 
stories that offered a completely different understanding of the world, different understanding of its origins, of how the world worked, of how you were to live in the world, the different values that you had to hold in order to make it work. It was a world that, according to one of the commentators, was, quote, polytheistic in nature, superstitious in character, and pluralistic in a practice, unquote. Polytheistic, superstitious, pluralistic, everything that was completely counter to what the Hebrews had grown up learning in Israel. Nebuchadnezzar force-fed them a new worldview, an entirely different approach to life, one that would replace their former way of understanding the world. And then third, he enticed them. He gave them a taste of all that their new life could offer them. They dined on the food and wine that he ate and drank. Food and wine fit for a king. Food and wine that reinforced for them that he was now the source of their new life. That they didn't need to look to God to provide daily bread because now Nebuchadnezzar was the one who gave them daily bread. They feasted daily and they lived in an amazing city, very seductive city, city that I think you and I would have found fascinating. It was the largest city of its day, metropolitan center. It was a cultured city. It's where the hanging gardens were. They were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a city of culture, it's a city of science. Babylonian science was revered throughout the ancient world. Culture, science, it was a city of power. Babylon was the capital city of the Babylonian empire. That was an empire that had been a world power. It had given way to others, but now it was resurgent. It was now back on center stage and it would stay on top for a number of years. It actually would stay on top from 605 BC to 539 BC. That's when Babylon would dominate the rest of the known world. And that period of time is roughly the same length of time when Daniel and his friends lived there. So throughout their lives, they are living at the center of the world. It's an exciting place to live. It was an exciting way to live. Nebuchadnezzar enticed them. And fourth, he gave them new names. Verse seven. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. I'm not going to go into them now, but each Hebrew name has some reference to God. The God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while there's some debate about the Babylonian names, they each seem to have something to do with a Babylonian deity. In other words, these young men were given a new name that matched the new worldview and the new lifestyle that they had been brought into. A new name that matched the new identity that they were now supposed to adopt. Daniel and his friends were transported to the most important city of the most powerful and influential empire of their day. They lived like kings in an amazing, cutting-edge, trend-setting, cultured city, and they were given everything that they needed in order to succeed there. Now, do you hear the offer that Nebuchadnezzar is making to them? He says, do well in your studies. Abandon your past beliefs. Embrace these new ideas, this completely different spirituality. Grow into your new identity. Grow into your new name. Do that, and all this can be yours. 
That's why you have to remember the hostility underneath. Because the surface presentation looks so appealing. It is so appealing. It's meant to look that way. That's one way the world engages God's people. It attempts to co-opt them. It offers them a carrot if they cooperate. But you have to be careful. Because if the carrot fails, there is a stick. A stick that's used to crush them. The book of Daniel is divided into two sections. The first six chapters tell different stories of Daniel and his friends in Babylon. The last six chapters revolve around four visions that Daniel had of events on the world stage. And in those future visions, God's people suffer really badly. You read in chapter 7 of a powerful king who will, verse 21, make war with the saints. That's a way of talking about God's people. He'll make war with the saints and prevail over them. Verse 25, he will speak words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High who will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It doesn't sound real positive for the people of God. Or in chapter 12, you read that Daniel's speaking with an angelic being who's been describing the end times, and someone else asks, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And the angel answers in verse 7 that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people, the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. There's the stick. Go along with the program. Let yourself be co-opted or be warred upon, prevailed over, worn out, and shattered. That's how God sees the world that's set against him. That's how he sees it engaging his people, either trying to co-opt them or crush them. So let me ask you, are you ready for that? Are you ready to live in that world? Do you work hard to see the carrots that it's offering as it tries to co-opt you? Do you recognize indoctrination for what it is when the world is trying to squeeze you into its thought patterns? Do you study hard to understand God's viewpoint because you know you're not going to get it from the world around you, that you're only going to get something different? Do you work to teach your children to see the world for what it is? Do you help them understand what it's trying to teach them? Do you show how it entices them, how it tries to give them a new identity? Do you see the carrots? And are you ready for the stick? Are you prepared to be persecuted for your faith? To join those who are warred upon, prevailed over, worn out, and shattered? Jesus promised us that that was part of what it means to follow him faithfully on this earth. On the night when he was arrested, right before he went to the cross, he said to his disciples in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will persecute you also. He promised them that they would be persecuted. That's what the early church experienced. It's what the apostles told the early church to expect. It's what the apostles tell us to expect. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you see the carrots? Are you ready for the stick? You need to be because that's how the world has always treated God's people. It's how the world will treat you. Now, I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm not saying that to turn you against the world as though you know you could match its hatred with your own. I'm saying this to give you a realistic picture of what the world is like. You can't love someone if you don't understand them, which means that you have to see the world for what it is if you're going to actually care about the people in this world, if you are going to love the people in this world into something better. So point one, the world is hostile to God's people. Point two, it tries to co-opt or crush them. Point three... <laughs> In the face of all of that, what keeps you here living faithfully? Frankly, when you read the book of Daniel, it is tempting to walk away and think, man, uh, I'm not sure I'm up for that. Why would God say stuff like that? Is that supposed to encourage me? And the answer actually is yes. It is supposed to encourage you. Because just like in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel does not hold up the power of people. It holds up the power of God. It shows you that he is the one who is sovereign, that he rules his world over all of history, and that he brings his purposes to pass regardless of what is taking place on this earth. It teaches you that nothing that happens, not even horrible evil to his people, nothing that happens is outside his control and that he only allows what he hates in order to bring about a greater good even if that greater good is not immediately apparent, even if it takes years and years to become apparent. Let's take a look at verse two again. We've already learned in verse one that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, that he besieged it, but there's more to the story than that. He conquered it, but there's something even bigger going on than Nebuchadnezzar. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it, verse two, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave that's the real story. That's the real behind-the-scenes mover and shaker. It's the Lord. He's the one whose actions determine the outcome. The real story is about what he's doing. And as you keep reading chapter 1, you keep seeing him intervene. In verse 9, we learn that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, intervened in history. Verse 17, God gave the Hebrew youths learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, involved himself in their lives. God gave, three times in chapter one, God gave, God gave, God gave. So regardless of the physical causes that you see, Nebuchadnezzar besieging Jerusalem, Daniel asking not to eat the king's food, the Hebrew youths studying like crazy, behind all those secondary causes is the primary cause. God gave. God has purposes. God uses people, even evil kings, with their own agendas to accomplish what God wants done. Now, some of what God is doing is he's disciplining his people. Told them long ago, back in the book of Leviticus, that if they broke his covenant, he would send them into exile. 
That's part of what he's doing here by giving Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He's disciplining his people. But he's also doing something for Babylon at the same moment. He's planting missionaries in the heart of the greatest nation on earth. He's planting representatives of himself into the king's court. Young men who will embrace the life, not that Nebuchadnezzar offers them, young men who will embrace the life that God gave them, who will not compromise their faith in God, who will witness to God throughout their lives in what they say and in what they do. God has arranged events in such a way that he brings his perspective into the heart of a pagan world, a perspective that will challenge the pagan worldview, that will show how inadequate it is for living, that will offer a better one. He's gonna do that in the king's palace. God gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, which would lead to something that Nebuchadnezzar did not expect. We're going to read chapter 4 in a couple of weeks. Chapter 4 ends up with Nebuchadnezzar praising God. He says, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those words just came from a pagan king's mouth. Why? Because God gave. God gave him evangelists. God sovereignly planted them in Nebuchadnezzar's court without asking his permission. Evangelists who over time gained the king's trust and his respect and who pointed him repeatedly over and over and over to the one true God. It's the same reason why God sent his son Jesus to the earth, why God gave us Christ. You can't find someone from a more noble or royal family. And yet Jesus did what? He left his father's home to enter into an alien world, a world that had long ago rejected his father, that had an alternative worldview. Jesus came here, and what did he do? He studied for a lot longer than three years. He learned everything that there was to know about us from the inside. He learned, if you want to say it this way, our language and our literature. He learned our culture, our ways of life. He became human in every possible way and never once compromised. He didn't let this world co-opt him. He lived in constant tension every day of his life. He was tempted in every way we are. So that every temptation that you face, he knows He understands the struggle that you have to live faithfully on this earth, the struggle to live within that tension, the struggle, the desire to to get rid of that tension. He understands all of that. He was tempted to compromise in every way, yet never sinned, never lost his connection to God despite living in an alien land. And so he was able to witness to us constantly what God is like. And for that, For his refusal to compromise, he was warred upon his entire life. The devil tried to co-opt him. The Pharisees and teachers of the law tested him. Even his disciples tried to get him to change his mind about going to the cross. He was warred upon his entire life, and at the end, he was prevailed over at the cross. Worn out, shattered by bearing the penalty of sins that he did not commit. Daniel and his friends were sent to Babylon by God in part as judgment against their nation's sins. 
They bore the penalty of sins that they did not commit, but they couldn't pay for those sins, couldn't wipe them out. But Jesus did. He embraced his father's plan, even though when he died, it looked like evil had won, that it had besieged and conquered him, but that wasn't the full story. Behind what Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles and the Israelites had done to Jesus in Jerusalem, there was a deeper reality. And the early church understood it. It's why they were able to pray in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, that it was God's hand and God's plan that predestined all of it to happen. That God gave Jesus into their hand and that Jesus embraced what God gave him. Jesus accepted that personal suffering from his father. Hardships and persecution, the world's carrots and sticks in order to get rid of the times that you've given into the carrots and run away from the sticks. Jesus accepted all that so that the Father's mercy might reach beyond him to you and to me. And that's the life that he now calls you to, to voluntarily embrace the tension of living out your faith among people who don't yet share it for their sake. That's why you're here in the Philadelphia suburbs or wherever it is that you're living while you're watching this. Behind all the decisions that you and others have made for your life is a God who gave you to the area in which you live. He gave you to the people that you live around. He gave you to the people that you work with. He gave you to the people you go to school with. He gave you to them so that they could see and hear a little bit of what he's like. An opportunity so that they could experience him to to maybe be surprised at what they see, to be attracted, to be drawn to him so that they would also want a better life. Don't shrink back from the tension of living in this world. Instead, give yourself to the life that God has given you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you crossed time and space to get to us. Because, Lord, we once were part of that world that wanted nothing to do with you. Lord, we didn't recognize our antagonism, but we were so self-absorbed and so self-focused, we had no interest in your agenda. Thank you, Lord, that you had a better agenda for us, that you have come and entered into this world in order to rescue us. Lord, fully remake us into your image. Plant your agenda down deep in our hearts so that we don't want anything other than to be with you and to proclaim you to the people around us. Lord, do that for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your church, and for the sake of those who are still being brought into your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.